Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by UkraineWorld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm editor-in-chief of UkraineWorld.org, and I'm joined by my colleague, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine, Maxim Panchenko. Hello, Maxim. Hello. So, traditionally, in this monthly episode, we are going to talk about what happened in Ukraine in April. And there were many interesting and many important events, and primarily, of course, the Russia's escalation on Ukraine's border. So what were the key topics, in your opinion, Maxim? Yes, of course. So primarily, we're going to cover the escalation in the East. We're going to cover the Russian's army on Ukraine's border, about whether a big war is possible. We're going also to talk about the withdrawal of troops, maybe the alleged withdrawal of troops from the eastern border of Ukraine. Uh, after that, we're going to cover the geopolitical context of the happening. And we're going to finish uh, with uh, trying to stretch this topic beyond Ukraine and uh, speak about Russian aggression beyond Ukraine in several European states. Yeah, and indeed, the key topic is, of course, the uh, the mobilization of Russian troops on Ukraine's border, mm -hmm. which we have... Uh, Basically, Ukrainians and the world were following probably from March, but in April it was the most the most harsh episode. During several weeks, we saw the increase of Russian troops on Ukraine's uh, Ukraine-Russian border in Crimea. And uh, when I'm talking about Ukraine-Russian border, I don't mean only the the border with the occupied territories in Donbass. I also mean some other regions like Voronezh, which is uh, a bit a bit in a different direction. So Ukraine had the impression of being, you know, preparing that Russia is being preparing for a very large. Uh, offensive, and uh, we were talking about 90,000 troops, and with the prognosis, with the forecast of 120,000 troops, and of course this is huge forces, and uh, what was what was the climate at that moment in Ukraine, Maxim? Well, first of all, the estimates some, sometimes have been even, even bigger, because according to European officials, I may be mistaken, but I think that was in the blog of Mr. Borrell, who estimated that uh, the number of troops uh, almost exceeded 150,000, which uh, effectively exceeds the entire uh, the entire troops of Ukrainian army at all. So yes, that was very dangerous, and of course that uh, that sent a, me a message of agitation to Ukraine and to Ukraine's uh, Western partners, and of course. Uh, the fact that troops uh, were uh, were located along the entire length of the border with Russia and along the administrative border with uh, with the Crimea, uh, it, it added up to the agitation because being attacked from everywhere and also this was a different story. But approximately at the same time there were tensions in the Transnistria region. So and. That effectively, effectively meant that Ukraine was surrounded by Russian or pro-Russian uh, troops, and nobody, uh, nobody knew what that escalation would uh, would result in, because uh, Putin did not seem to be uh, to be reasonable about not doing that. It really was an impression for a good period of time that escalation was uh, inevitable. And even now, uh, we we are going to talk about this announcement that the troops will be withdrawn. The announcement mm -hmm. was made by Mr. Shoigu, who is <clears throat> Russia defense minister and long partner of Mr. Putin. But uh, the announcement was made that from 23rd of April, the troops will be gradually withdrawn. Uh, but we are now 30th of April, and we mm -hmm. see what what uh, the intelligence is telling, what uh, what... 
uh, other sources are telling is that, well, the withdrawal does not really take place. It took place probably uh, at some aspects in Crimea, but not in the mentioned Voronezh or Voronezh region. And what is the most important thing is that even if the the people uh, the people are withdrawn, the, 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 the army, the soldiers, the equipment, all oh, yes. those tanks, all those, you know, uh, vehicles, arm- armored vehicles, etc., are, are still there. And, of course, we, we should not exclude any escalation, any further escalation. So it was kind of a, a game when the, the tensions were increased and it was said that, look, we are, we're decreasing the tensions, but the threat is still there. And the recent statement by Mr. Lavrov, a foreign minister, that we can avoid, maybe we can avoid the war with Ukraine. Well, you can, you can read this, this mm-hmm. kind of a phrase as a, as a, rather this, as a threat that, well, you, you can avoid, but maybe not. So, indeed, these are are very, you know, worrying situations and we can ask a question why Putin is doing that, why he is escalating, what what are the reasons for that? Well, I think they are in several dimensions. First of all, uh, there is something that touches upon the the conflict in Donbass in the first place, uh, because uh, Mr. Putin uh, sees that uh, Zelensky is not giving in, because maybe Putin expected that because of his political inexperience and so on and so forth, Zelensky would be more willing to accept Russian terms of conflict settlement in the East. But Ukraine does not seem to be doing that. So uh, Putin needed to uh, to have a, you know, a point of pressure on Ukraine. So that's the first thing. And also there is a, an international dimension uh, because all of this of these developments around Donbass, they can be embedded into the broader context of the Russian-Western relations. And especially, essentially, this can be seen as a test for a new president, of, for the new president of the United States, Mr. Biden. So Putin is probably raising stakes yes. um, before any eventual meeting with Biden, or he wants to push Biden actually to meet Putin. Uh, you know, we, we know the story that Biden mm-hmm. in an interview confirmed a uh, a suggestion by a journalist that Putin is a killer and um, and of course yeah this can be the reason another reason can be that there is you know growing uh, question whether Biden administration was, will impose sanctions on Nord Stream Russia's key mm-hmm. political uh, and energy project I'm stressing the point that political and energy project because let me remind that the key political reason of Nord Stream 2 is basically to cut Eastern and Central Europe from gas supplies which are going uh, from Russia on land so to cut uh, Ukraine also Belarus by the way uh, countries like Poland, countries like Central and Eastern Europe, etc. And, uh, well, on the construction side of everything, everything is almost done with Nord Stream 2, because we know that Nord Stream is is operational. Uh, And the question is whether it will be really operational. So you can can lay uh, lay the pipelines, but whether the the gas will be supplied and whether the companies will be authorized, it will be certified, whether the companies will be authorized to use this gas, etc. So the key key to this question lays in in Washington. And of course, Biden administration is is very in in a kind of a difficult situation because uh, it was kind of a warning that not stream is, is, is not a good project, is a political project, but uh, and we understand that it is in American interest n- not to let it happen, but 
on the other hand, there are you know relations between United States and Germany, and Germany, unfortunately, uh, except some exceptions, you know, uh, political parties which are opposing it, but uh, many many political forces are really supporting the project. So we can see a global you know situation around all this. But let us address to to what's happening in Russia. I mean, the Putin's address to Federal Assembly which uh, many people in Ukraine were watching very closely because we were afraid that Putin will, A, recognize the occupational authorities in Donbass, uh, so-called republics, and say, well, you're independent, uh, or you're, you will be part of Russia that, that he made with Crimea. Mm -hmm. uh, remember that Russia is distributing very massively Russian passports in the occupied territories in Donbass. According to some estimations, there are about a million Russian passports already there. So it's probably already one quarter, one third of the population. Uh, and the, th the, third, the, the second worry was that Putin will actually uh, ask the permission of the Federal Assembly to use the, um, foreign, the, 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 the forces, the army, abroad, as, as he asked for this mm -hmm, during mm -hmm. the Crimean annexation. Nothing happened, and uh, what we heard from Putin's address, Maxime? Well, it's rather what we did not hear, because all those things that you, that you said that we feared that he would say, would have said, he did not. And uh, that's, uh, on the one hand, that's good news, because that uh, that decreased the the level of tension, and it became obvious that uh, maybe everything that had been taking place was the game to to make the higher stakes, and then to become calmer. But just hey, to say like hey guys, I just show you what I'm capable of, so you need to talk to me. But that's definitely why this, on the other hand, may be a, a not so good signal, because. This evidently testifies to the fact that Putin is evidently ha having a bigger a bigger game in mind, and we do not know for sure what that might be. Of course, we may assume quite uh, quite well that uh, this lies in the on the international plane, that uh, this is some kind of bargaining with the West, and of course with Mr. Biden, as we already mentioned, uh, and putting him to a test. As far as I, as can be seen right now, uh, the United States is. Uh, is resisting this uh, this game very well because uh, there does not seem to have been any given in to to, to Putin. Uh, however, we'll need to see what the longer the longer game uh, here is. For the time being, yes, escalation is uh, officially uh, not taking place now because Putin was not was far from being that belligerent as feared uh, during his address. Uh, but again, as you mentioned at the at the outset of our podcast, the troops are still there, and if not all the troops are there, the equipment is still there. So it is it is too early to say that we've passed the pinnacle of this escalation. Yeah, I think it's it's always too early when we're talking about Russia to you know to say that the threat is over. And uh, I think Ukraine should be pre well prepared, and the international community should be well prepared. Uh, coming back to this Putin's address, it seemed to me that it it was basically a game with the internal audience, with the Russian audience, and he was kind of uh, showing himself not as a you know as a uh, as a warrior going outside and fighting against the evil world, but rather as a kind of a welfare giver. 
So he was uh, saying so much how much welfare he will give to people, how much new opportunities he mm-hmm. will he will do, etc. Let's remember that Putin's rating are de- de- decreasing, that he's facing the elections in September to parliamentary elections. Yes. Of course, we understand that you know in Russia when. Uh, the real port- politics is non-existent. Elections is a very tricky thing, but but still, we see from the sociology, Russian sociology, for example, from the Levada group, that uh, the, there is less and less support, including for you know some kind of uh, military actions. But interesting, coming back to Ukraine, interesting that Mr. Zelensky, Ukraine's president, addressed addressed the Ukrainian nation just before. The day before, I think, the Putin's address. Yes. And um, he looked quite calm but uh, and quite self-confident. But we understand that, I mean, this is, this is how he plays. He's a very good actor. And when he is caught uh, in improvisation, he looks, for example, during a press conference with Mr. Macron in, in Paris, he was... Mm-hmm. During the visit, uh, he he looked much less self-confident, and when he also visited the the Donbas, the Ukrainian government-controlled territories, so he suggested. I think that's that's kind of. I was very surprised, and these kind of a suggestions um, are basically typical for this administration. He suggested to meet Putin in in any parts of Donbas, as he said, any parts of Ukrainian Donbas. Putin reacted on the next day uh, when Lukashenko came to, here, to 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 Moscow, and we can also discuss this because this is a very important setting. Uh, Putin said, "Well, come on, ca- come to Moscow, <laughs> the Mr. Zelensky." So, of course, we understand that uh, at, at current circumstances, Zelensky will not come to Moscow, and Putin will not come to yes. Donbas. But there is this speculation that the two leaders should meet, and you don't know there are so many leaks that well, they will meet probably in Vatican. <laughs> Then they 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 will meet in uh, what else in Israel or they will meet um, I, I forgot another place I mean why why don't we talk yes. about Australia I don't know Mars or something else but I think this is very dangerous because bilateral meeting between Putin and Zelensky puts the Normandy format into risk and there was a clear kind of a understanding that uh, the only place the only format you can meet with Putin you should meet with Putin is with your French and German colleagues with Angela Merkel with German Chancellor with Emmanuel Macron with uh, French president because this is a setting what Putin can be playing, uh, he can say, or Zelensky, he can, or they can say, look, we're not going to discuss Donbass. Mm-hmm. And that's what Putin say. We're going to discuss, I don't know, gas supplies. Or, as Putin said, we're going to discuss, you know, persecutions of Russian speakers in, in Ukraine. is typical propaganda trick. But I think this is really very dangerous, this idea of a bilateral meeting. What do you think? Well, I think that uh, what Mr. Zelensky has been doing is trying to get creative, in this difficult situation. But at the same time, uh, I don't think this is an instance where uh, this uh, creativity was very relevant. Uh, because yes, as you mentioned, uh, this th- this puts the Normandy uh, format uh, at risk. Well, maybe not at risk as such. It I would say it jeopardizes the Normandy format because the, it's not about the the hurt that can uh, that can. In, be entailed from the meeting with Putin, from bilateral meeting with Putin. Maybe they would 
uh, be able to discuss something uh, effective. But it's rather about the repercussions, because later Putin will say, like, so do I talk to you bilaterally or in this uh, Normandy format? So what's the value of Normandy format? So he, he's going to, to, to trick Ukraine into into being deprived of the effective uh, formats of the conflict solution. Of course, and we, we, we never know what will be said during a bilateral meeting and what blackmail Russia can really express, which it cannot express during a meeting where there is a German chancellor and French president as well. Another in- important setting which we already mentioned is uh, Belarus-Russia relations, because yes. in April Mr. Lukashenko came to, to Russia and uh, it looked like he's, you know, we understand that in the Belarus-Russia relations Everybody understands who is the boss, but still there was a play of a kind of equality. And Belarus leader, Mr. Lukashenko, before these tragic events uh, uh, during summer and, and, uh, and uh, autumn, when, when he was, his administration, his police, his security for, forces were so cruel towards mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the people, the, um, the, the citizens of Belarus who protested against him. So, Obviously, he's a, a non grata in, in the West, in the international community. In the international community, parts of it even uh, uh, recognizes um, Svetlana, Svetlana Tsikhanovska as the, le- the leader, as the elected leader. So the only option for Lukashenko is basically Russia. And of, of course, this weakens very much his position. And therefore, his visit to Moscow was right, uh, what like... He was not met in the airport by Putin, so it was clearly a sign that look, he, you're you're not my peer, you're not equal to me, mm-hmm. you're just a vassal, you know. And during the joint press conference, I was so much surprised. It looked uh, very similar to the way how Putin invites his subordinates in the Russian administration, like I don't know some ministers or whatever, and they just reporting to him. Right, so so Lukashenko was uh, reporting to to Putin about something agreements that were made by the two governments, etc. I think this is a very worrying. Uh, and to our listeners, I would like to refer to our analytic paper, which is called Belarus Watch, which Internews Ukraine makes together with the European Values Think Tank in Prague, European. Values Center for Security Studies. We just issued the first kind of a study, Belarus Watch, and then we will be doing regular, uh, regular updates, regular uh, newsle- newsletters, and I think we will also make some several podcasts. So, what are Belarusian experts? And this is report is done by Belarusian experts in English. What they are saying is that there is this increasing, you know talk about constitutional reform in Belarus, about the the construction of the so-called union state, uh, and what worries us Ukrainians is whether there will be a strong defense element in this union state, meaning that, you know, Russian troops will be legally massively based in Belarus, and that means creating yet another front against Ukraine, northern front, that Ukraine can uh, really be facing a situation when it will be attacked from the north, from the east, and from the south. Yes, so, well, first of all, at this point, I don't think anybody uh, can have 
uh, doubts about how much uh, Lukashenko is dependent on Putin, because we can even see that uh, prior to the uh, story with the uh, notorious elections last summer, that uh, it seemed that Lukashenko was not very much willing to 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 discuss the extent of the Union state scope that uh, Russia had pushed for, because uh, I remember that there had been some. Uh, Uh, negotiations to which Lukashenko went, but he returned and said, basically said that uh, they want they want too, too much from us. And but now it seems that this is the only way uh, for Lukashenko out because hey, he is living in a, in a turmoiled country uh, and will probably do so for the rest of his term to whichever extent it's going to last. He's hardly going to win the next election without uh, any less blood, but probably even more blood than this time. So this is this is becoming increasingly less an option too. But if he makes this not only about himself, but also about the, as you said, the constitutional reform and presents it as, as for the country, so that may be a life-saving moment for him and also the, uh, the safeguard for Belarus for not becoming a democratic state, not not. And, and this not only refers to specific uh, specific people like Tikhanovskaya or somebody else, but democracy at all. So yes, uh, I think that's that's the direction Belarus is is uh, taking. And yes, you uh, as you mentioned, the the fact that Ukraine is going to be surrounded even from the north, it's not like it never happened before, because the the extent of the cooperation between Belarus and, and Russia in the uh, military sphere as well. It always allowed for the presence of Russian troops in Belarus for different trainings, for different exercises, and so on and so forth. There have been in the last couple of years regular reports on on how Ukraine should be beware, how Ukraine should beware about the presence of those troops uh, to the north. But now that it's going to be institutionalized, yes, of course, and it should be said in this context that given the developments in the last seven years. Uh, northern borders is not something that Ukraine has paid particular attention to when it comes to it being defended. So uh, I think that Ukraine should should try not to waste time in this respect because I think that Putin will uh, will try to do everything as quickly as possible when it comes to this uh, state union uh, union state uh, in order to, to to achieve this surprise effect for Ukraine and for the for the world. Uh, he just needs it. So Ukraine does not need to, to, to waste any time here because there is much to be done to the north of Ukraine. Yeah, indeed. And um, we see that, you know, the situation is much, much more complex than simple, uh, simply what's happening in Donbass, what's happening in, in Crimea, what's happening in Ukraine. We see the international context. And let's, let's go further in this international context. In April, we have seen several big diplomatic scandals. Uh, started from Czech Republic when the, the, there was the uh, big investigation by Czech uh, police, which uh, which showed that the explosions that took place uh, several years ago, I think it was 2014, yes, right? Yes. Uh, the explosions on the arms bases uh, uh, in in Czech Republic were were made by Russian agents. Can you tell tell us more about the story? Yes, so the story is about that there was the ammunition uh, base in, in Vrbatice, I think that the, the place is called in Czech Republic. I believe it's to the east of the country. And uh, back in 2014, there, were, uh, there was a series of explosions. Mm, but as far as I understand, it is only now 
that several specific and key details have been looked into as it comes to these to these explosions. First of all, it was reported that the people that were found out to be embroiled in this in this operation uh, were the same people that uh, had been behind the attack in Salisbury. The so-called the Bashirov and case. Petrov, right? Yes, Bashirov and Petrov, or whichever their real names are. So, yes, and another important detail, and this is what links the development to Ukraine, is that it is believed, and well, it is confirmed, that back then uh, this ammunition base was filled with, well, ammunition owned by a Bulgarian, I'm not sure if it's, if it's right to say a warlord, because he was a legal trader of, of arms. His name was Emilian Habrov. And allegedly and reportedly, the ammunition that he owned at that base was meant to be, to be delivered to Ukraine in order for it to be used in Ukraine's defense against Russian aggression back in 2014. And so this, uh, this basically is a, a, a diversion on the Russian side for this ammunition not to be used at the end of the day by Ukraine. Also, this is, um, as far as it is reported, uh, there have been attempts to assassinate uh, Mr. Habrov himself because there have been attempts to poison him with combat uh, poisons. But... There is a big picture we need to keep here before our eyes, and this is that Russia is engaged in what is called state terrorism. And this is something that has been uh, straightforwardly been uh, worded out this way by the, by the Western authorities, by the Czech Republic's authorities as well. So yes, that is, that is something uh, very, um, very important to understand, that Russia see, sees no limits when, when going to this kind of operation uh, abroad. Yeah, it's an interesting how when Ukraine coined this, you know, operation in the East, the anti-terrorist operation, mm -hmm. it was very much criticized in the international community. And we, I, I remember, I remember in 2014-15, we are discussing um, with you know different journalists, experts whether this concept terrorism applies. And one of my personal argument is that this is Russian tactics abroad. It's a kind of a state terrorism, and even you know creating this de facto, uh, you know, creating these so-called republics is, is also kind of, a, you know, a sort of a state terrorism when you just create political entities which can be used later as a bomb. Mm -hmm. But then we, we saw the Salisbury attack, then uh, we saw the Czech Republic attack, and we uh, the Bulgarian authorities are also telling us that there were explosions in the Bulgarian ammunition bases, and they were also linked uh, probably to Russia and uh, for arms which were set to go to even not, to, not only to Ukraine but to Georgia. Uh, so we see a big diplomatic scandal and Czech Republic is just sending off Russian diplomats and even threatens that there will be only one person in Russian embassy in Prague. Now, I guess there were about 100. So um, it's, a, it's a really big thing. And, and Russia replies to that. Uh, and there are rumors saying that Russian foreign ministry will soon come up with a list of unfriendly states, mm -hmm. starting with the United States, of course, uh, quoting such countries like Ukraine, uh, Baltic countries, but also Czech Republic, for example, or Australia, or I don't and know. And the UK, by the way. 
Sorry? And the UK, by the way. UK. So we, we don't know because there were several, you know, information coming from Russian so-called media. But, um, but it's, if the foreign minister or if official Russian authorities come up with the official list of unfriendly states, that really reminds, you know, Soviet Union and, 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 and all the rest. So we see that the implications of what's going on in, in Ukraine are going farther, farther abroad. And, and uh, remember that there were so many explosions in the ammunition base in Ukraine in 2014, 15, 16. And there, yes. were, uh, a, the, there are no investigation why they happened. Uh, they were during the war. And you can assume that there were, you know, also kind of a terrorist attacks. We can assume, uh, as we can uh, see from the Czech Republic case. So let's yes. let's follow this closely. Yes, sure. That, that that's an unfolding, a still unfolding story. So yes, there is much to come. Let's come back to Ukraine and talk about the Ukrainian internal situation. There were some developments which are kind of worrying. One of these is related to military affairs. For many months, uh, Ukraine was not able to, Ukrainian defense ministry, Ukrainian government, Ukrainian parliament, were not able to formulate or to present the so-called Državne Oboronne Zamovlenia, the state defense uh, procurement, 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 right. So in the midst of this, you know, escalation, aggression, Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian military factories, which Ukraine, by the way, is a very strong uh, producer of, of mm -hmm. arms. Yes. And one of the, I think it's it, uh, 12th in the world as an arms exporter and basically can be even in top 10. So Ukraine have, Ukraine have, uh, has uh, big facilities, but the... Ukr Oboron Prom, the big concern, the big state-owned concern, was not receiving this procurement. So this issue was only resolved, I think, a week ago or two weeks ago. But this shows how the chaotic nature of today's administration uh, is, is still on the agenda. And we still see how sometimes they're slowly reacting to the situation. Yes, indeed. Another worrying trend, I would say, it was the in the gas field. We saw the uh, firing of Mr. Andriy Kobalev, who is the head of board of Naftogaz. And Naftogaz is Ukrainian gas and oil champion, national champion, one of the key companies. And Mr. Kobalev is very known as a top manager of Naftogaz, as a person who was leading this, you know, court investigations against Gazprom. And let me remind that Ukraine won these court investigations in, in, in Stockholm, in Sweden, against Gazprom. Uh, and uh, more than that, the government fired the whole supervisory board of the company. And this is kind of a very, very worrying thing because Ukraine, under you know Poroshenko administration, under the influence of international partners, were creating kind of an infrastructure of state companies in which infrastructure of uh, <clears throat> administrative infrastructure, in which there were strong checks and balances in which there were supervisory boards. Sometimes the supervisory boards, you know, there were different experts, Ukrainian or international. And of course, they were creating kind of a more uh, more transparency and more independence autonomy of these institutions or these companies. And the supervisory board decides uh, to appoint or to sack the head of board. And 
in this situation right now, we see the situation when the government is intervening, fires the supervisory board, fires the head of board, uh, and kind of uh, does things that uh, I would say put put under question the big this reform of corporations in Ukraine, of state-owned corporations, because at the same time, for example, I see the interview of the head of Ukrabaobaranpro, Mr. Gusev, who is saying, we want to create a kind of a transparent state-owned corporation, which will you know, attract fundings from uh, very different sources, etc., which will be transparent, not as a, a corrupt post-Soviet uh, corporation. And we see the reform of nafta gas which was created as a kind of a transparent company which which is now undone and the question is whether this undoing of this reform of uh, you know state-owned corporations uh, will continue and that's a very also worrying trend and of course there is the international aspect to it because, uh, of course, this is not something that our Western partners are going to like and have not already liked. And, well, it's interesting how Zelensky is, what's the process of his thinking here? Because on the one hand, he has been, especially against the backdrop of the escalation we have been talking about, he has been actively pushing for uh, more active cooperation between Ukraine and the EU up until the uh, quite, uh, well, I would say maybe not nonsense, but reckless questions like, why is Ukraine not st- not in NATO already, and so on and so forth? Something that is not formulated this way in diplomacy. So on the one hand, he wants this this close cooperation with the West, but on the other hand, uh, he is still um, he has he still has this uh, romantic mascots of his electoral uh, campaign, where he basically through his uh, proxy TV series, the servant of the people, and so on and so forth, when he hinted that Ukraine did not need to listen to what other players like the IMF were telling him. So maybe this so he's basically caught between this desire to cooperate and not to cooperate, not to listen to the West. And this may be dangerous because this uh, this ad- pieces of advice that we need to listen from the West when it comes to the organization of state-owned enterprises like this. So this is not something that at the end of the day the West itself needs. It's something that Ukraine needs. Yeah, this is not about the West because this is, by the way, one of the things which is promoted by this anti-West propaganda, which mm-hmm. we at uh, Ukraine World is uh, following very closely, they were attacking these uh, supervisory boards of state-owned corporations uh, since already, I think, one, one and a half, two years. There was huge, you know, information attack in the Telegram channels, etc., linked to people, to like uh, people like Medvedchuk, people like. Uh, Dubinsky, uh, a person close to Kolomoisky, we know this uh, notorious MP. And uh, uh, there was this part of the general narrative that Ukraine is under so-called external governance and that Ukraine is, you know, ruled by the so-called Sarasata, meaning Soros children or Soros piglets. And uh, the key element of it is the supervisory boards over the state-owned corporations where Ukraine invites including also foreigners. And of course, we can talk about, you know, different flaws in these supervisory boards, etc., how people get money, how much they are, they are being paid, etc. Well, there are, there are flaws. But uh, the general idea is to make these state-owned corporations transparent, accountable, and uh, 
understood, understandable also by in the international business environment, because in order to get more funds, you know, sometimes you can go to, you know, uh, stock markets, for example, or attract investors into Ukarabaronprom, into Naftagas or whatever. And that, of course, uh, you know, challenging this architecture puts the whole idea of making Ukrainian state corporate sector transparent uh, under risk. So mm -hmm. we will, I think, wrap up on this moment. Uh, and you can see that there are lots of different topics. In April, April was really a hot month. Uh, now Ukraine is approaching Easter holidays and also Victory Days holidays. And uh, there will be another round on, on, of confrontation of different types of memories uh, about the Second World War. I would say the Russian narrative, which is, you know, promoting the victory in the Second World War as the biggest, biggest national myth. And uh, Ukrainian-European narrative, which is trying to look at uh, primarily at, at the cost, at the human lives, etc. But on these issues, I think we will be uh, talking uh, in May, in late May. So mm -hmm. yes. this was a, a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name, my name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and I was joined by my, my colleague Maxim Panchenko, uh, journalist and analyst at ukraineworld.org. I hope you follow us on social networks in Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and uh, subscribe to our podcast and stay with us. <laughs>